0: Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso.
1: This season's broad theme is Navigating Uncharted Territory.
0: If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to a, another episode of Season 10 of Surviving Society. I still can't believe we've made it to 10 seasons, T.
1: Knock a not <laughs>
0: Knock I night, oh, night. There's nothing else to say it's, it's, it's being night. a bit mad. It's being a bit mad. Mm. But anyway... Really exciting guest that we've got on today is Richard Yabois, who works for Homes England. He's going to be here as an independent today um, to talk to us about the East End of London. Richard is a researcher and historian. And I contacted Richard because I saw this brilliant thread he had done of images of areas and council estates in Hackney. If you listen to the podcast, the East and the East End of London is something that we talk about a lot. Tiso is obviously from...
1: I love my ends. I love my ends. I love my ends. T is, <laughs> T is an, a
0: Londoner. T is an Eastender. I'm an Eastender. I don't have as close relationship with the East end of London or the East, but I have a bit of a fragmented relationship with it. That being that, my dad, his council flat to two thousand and eight was in Lower Captain, so I did spend a lot of time in the area. And I was saying to Richard before we started that our flat was on Murder Mile, so so a lot of my young years when I would be visiting my dad, I spent in the area. But I don't know it through and through like you guys. So Richard, it's brilliant to have you here. Thank you so much. Can you tell us a bit about how you got into this research? Obviously, you're from the area, but
2: yeah. So uh, thank you for the, the introduction as well. Uh, uh, Chantelle and T. So first and foremost, obviously, um, I'm Richard Dubois and I'm, I'm, I'm born and bred in Hackney. Hackney is very much part of me. I've lived in the borough for over 28 years. And I think what's been really interesting for me is kind of seeing the dramatic transformation of Hackney as T. I'm sure you're probably familiar with as well. Having grown up during the late 1990s and 2000s, during a time where Hackney was the most deprived borough in the country, seeing that transformation from an area that was kind of perceived as crime-ridden, had poor standards of housing, poor standards of education, poor standards of health, to a borough that's now celebrated, gone through this uh, economic transformation, uh, gone through this boom in in housing prices. For me, quite intriguing and quite um, interesting. And being a Hackney resident and having a background in in history and politics and working for uh, the government's housing department, I think trying to encapsulate all of those those different I guess interests really brought me to really focus on looking into the the history of um Hackney's housing estates and how that has fed into the regeneration process
0: what did you think T, when you when you saw the threads and when you saw Richard's stuff what did you think
1: I used to have
2: like really bad misgivings about gentrification
1: thinking like boom they've come to the ends like they're changing up the area but it's not as um black and white as that As Mm -hmm. most things, it's very nuanced, right? I was quite interested, you'll take a look at the kind of, from the post-war period onwards, right? Mm. So I was quite interested to look at the kind of how the government were creating flats for a need, the need Mm. to kind of house the post-war population after uh, after the mass bombings and after the slum clearances. So Mm. there was a need, but this, the slapdash mentality of building these brutalist buildings very quickly Mm. generated new problems that kind of set on top older problems, and so this is why you, where we find ourselves in this kind of current moment where the, they're kind of replacing mm. that stock, but because of the impact of the policies of the 80s, there's no mm. stock to replace them. The council, mm. That's not the council's job anymore. It's private investors, this new kind of phase of gentrification, state-led gentrification. So mm. the council's bringing in private investors to build flats, like they want to mum's flats and replace them, but mm. private investors want to make money first. Mm. Mm. So... You had this kind of catch twenty two, like where do I put these people, and how, and how do these people feel about this this whole process, right?
2: I, I completely agree to you, so, and you 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 made some really good points there. I think one of the one of the biggest concerns is that East End has been, I guess, probably for the last hundred years, been associated with poverty, been associated with this kind of crime ridden slash working class culture that's. Been deep rooted in uh, many of the communities within the East End, um, more specifically in Hackney as well. There was a huge incentive after the Second World War to to build people homes. Um, obviously, the, the the Blitz destroyed many parts of Hackney. Prior to that point, there was uh, a huge number of slums. But the real concern is, is that a lot of those estates that were built during the 1940s to the beginning of the 1970s were just uh, a, a really poor substandard. One of the issues is that although uh, many of the communities and many, many of the people that I, I've spoken to of that generation kind of reminisce about the good times on those estates, those estates, in some cases, were not appropriate for, for living. That's just fact. Um, you had issues of cockroaches, issues of infestation, issues of crime, issues of health risks as, in relation to asbestos. Um, you had general concerns around the structural design of these estates. These estates were not going to produce the kind of socio-economic development that, in my, in my view, Hackney deserved after the Second World War. In some, in, in some respects, you could argue that actually deepened socioeconomic concerns uh, throughout the borough. And this is why you get that perception of Hackney towards the end of the 1990s and 2000s, that, you know, the perception of, uh, as you mentioned, Chantel, around Murder Mile and this kind of perception of a no-go zone that that Hackney kind of position does. And I think, like you mentioned, Tiso, that the whole idea of regeneration isn't black and white. Many people, based on what I've just said, would perceive regeneration as bad because, you know, it's taken some of those communities out of uh, their previous uh, dwellings and demolished some of those estates. But we live in an environment that's much more, I guess, uh, attractive, safe, and many youngsters living in Hackney um, uh, during this generation are benefiting from that. Uh, and and that's a key point. But you see, the bad thing is
1: I kind of feel like, mm. like, like I, said, I, I take all those points, but I think What's happened with regeneration is that the benefits of regeneration are not shared equally. Mm. So if you, if you come to the ends, you're going to find enclaves of poverty, mm. enclaves where it's it's just the same as the 80s. Mm. But around that, so next door to me, I've got million pound, many pound flats. If I walk up the road, I've got students who pay like 500, 700 pounds a week. And I can even tell by the aesthetic, the way we dress, we're from different bits, Right. You're not from the ends. And I can tell, and this is the problem of regeneration. The benefits of it are not shared equally. So the East End that I grew up in is still alive and well, but in pockets. Mm-hmm. In those pockets, you still have the same criminality, the same story, the same narrative. What's becoming harder, though, is that in those enclaves, I can't live because the prices of everything around me has gone up to match the influx of the new residents. What we need is a, a, better, a better way of redistributing the kind of benefits of Redevelopment because mm. right now, as it stands, if you come to the ends, if you come to my block, it's still the block. <laughs> but if you go up the road, that's go, got That's what they, it's yeah. not. And they and these people, we don't mix. They don't mix. Mm. You can't you can't come to my block because it's a problem <laughs> for you. It's a problem because we will see you're different. Isn't it? But mm. if you but if we when we go to your bit, it's the same thing. We dress different. We speak different. So the idea that it was brought in by Tony Blair and his government of social mixing has failed. Mm. That idea of education of mixing the two groups of people has failed because. Those poor people are still living in those enclaves.
0: Following on some of the points you made about the building of um, social housing and council housing um, in the post-war period, like I, if I just think about my own little micro example of my dad's my dad's flat um, on the fifteenth floor, mm. like it was so. Like look back on it now, knowing what we know and just living the way we live now, it was so unsafe. We mm. used to have a rope in every, in both no in the both of the bedrooms um, because my dad was just so scared of mm. fire um, if any, it was ever going to be like do you know what I mean? But that wasn't mm. that wasn't it's not that that was sort of something shocking. It was just part of life mm. that like that unsafety and the things you talk about infestation that was something that we had as well and like mm. the asbestos was something that we had, but like that kind of existed next to harmonious community living as well Mm. like so I mean we're talking in the pre-chat like it it, when we talk about gentrification in these particular areas it makes me think about how things coexisted at the same time like two really Mm. extreme things yes crime was a massive part of the area so was community and so was harmony I think you're right Richard that sometimes it gets slightly romanticized Mm. in I, the face of such extreme regeneration. But I do tend to agree with Tiso with regards to this stuff. Like, it's just not, it's not distributed evenly.
2: No, mm, mm, I completely agree as well. Because I
1: live here, I start looking at some of the history. So if you go back to like Arthur Morrison and A Child mm. of Jago, right? So that's a book about the East End. And one of the things you find about in the story is that it's, crime is a rational choice here. Mm. So when we translate that to the modern kind of context, we look at murder rates or, well, one of, one of the things that happened was murder rates are down. Mad, so mad statistic, right? Murder <laughs> rates are down. Well, we, ask, we have to ask, well, why? If crime in these days was a rational trade because of the jobs, are, are there better jobs for these people? Mm. I, I don't know statistics, but I highly doubt it, right? So mm. you just displace crime. All the regulation is just displace these problems. Mm. So... For example, King, King's Cross was mad full of like street, walk, street workers and all that, but you've just dis- displaced this issue. Right now, in East London, the big problem is homelessness and drugs mm-hmm. right, on, on the streets. But you're not moving them, you're displacing these problems. So they've just boarded up all the problems places where they would go. So mm-hmm. now they can't sit there, they have to wander around. So I mm-hmm. find that historically, this has always been the case. These issues, these deep-rooted issues have always been part of the culture. In its vibrancy, it's produced things like grime, right? Mm. It's, it's produced movements, right, that are kind of change the landscape. But in its kind of darker moments, we have those creative murderistics. Mm. So this kind of culture that it produces, it has it has a vibrancy, but also it has its kind of, I don't know, I guess it's bad size. And gentrification, I guess, people bemoan it because it sanitises it. Like, when I went to New York, I see the gentrification there, and I think, hey, right, it's exactly the same. These streets are exactly the same as London. You're removing that kind of individuality, that... East, L- East Londoners are particularly proud of, right? Mm. Like, it's, it's a history that's written
2: about, it's studied with, like, a pet just man. Like, get me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Tisa, you, you made some some really good points there. I mean, firstly, obviously, gentrification is a... It's a worldwide phenomenon that has affected yeah, yeah. cities across the world. Like you mentioned, um, New York, Berlin, etc. But the second issue is that you, you mentioned around kind of grime and the culture. I mean, I remember growing up in the early 2000s and really feeling part of, I wouldn't say history, but you definitely felt that there was a significant cultural...
1: E-free, bloke. yeah, E-free. Yeah, I remember going
2: <laughs> even down the road. I remember, I remember that in 2004 and four, five. I remember those days. I remember like kind of being outside on the block and being with my friends and having the bikes and wearing the fishermen hats and doing all the rest of it. Do you know what I mean? I remember uh, kind of MCing on the, on the block that was, that was normal. But I guess that besides that there was the real concern of, I guess, being robbed, being stabbed, police potentially frisking you being in certain situations that you didn't want to be. I mean, I remember being a young man, probably 12, 13, and I grew up in um I grew up in, in Hometon, uh, uh part of South Hackney, and some of the pictures I put up on Twitter are reflective of that. But I couldn't go to certain places in Hackney. Like I couldn't go to, to London Fields, I couldn't go to, to Holly Street, I couldn't go to the northern part of Hackney. That was just forbidden. Like those are the realities that of course many individuals, many young people are still going through today. But because of the kind of the regeneration efforts that have taken place in Hackney, that sense of fear no longer exists as significantly as it did back then. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that, you know, regeneration on an overarching scale is positive. And like you said, in some in some respects it discriminates. Ethnic minorities, particularly black people, have not necessarily been beneficiaries of of, of regeneration. But one example I will give, and Chantel, you talked about um, your dad's housing block, is is Holly Street. So Holly Street was obviously um had four tower blocks and had uh, the the concept of a a snake block, which was effectively um, a mile-long row of of houses all connected together. One of the issues on that estate was that there were situations where people could literally jump into your window and rob your house. There was a real issue around crime. Uh, Many of the housing blocks were uh, burnt out or uh, boarded up. When I looked at the surveys of individuals, and to be honest, this isn't my work, but this is... um, uh, someone's work that uh, Keith Jacobs who done an analysis on, on on estates there was somewhere in the region of around 90% of people before the regeneration process wanted to leave the estate now that says to me that although there is a significant perception of community within Hackney the housing standards definitely played a negative impact on individuals, we can't like disregard that as part of the the, the the cultural significance of Hackney, like people did not want to live in these estates if you provide me the better living conditions, it's like mm. if my environment's better,
1: I will behave better, right? Mm. So following those kind of lines, so is it town planning? Because when I look across the world at bigger cities who have poorer areas, like in Brazil, the favelas, all these narrow rat runs generates a certain type of environment for people. Mm. So I've lived in Edinburgh. So when I went moved out and lived in some of the schemes they have, these narrow, badly built narrow spaces that almost like kind of I think Foucault's work speaks about spaces mm. like this, mm. like. If you have these spaces, it generates a certain attitude toward in people, how they behave. So mm. maybe it's, it's an issue of town planning, how they plan out are these architects. Why are you designing buildings that perpetuate these problems given the dearth of research that you have going back 100 years? you mm. had We had slums. We cleared them out because they had the exact same problem. When mm. industrialization was happening, people were moving to cities and the slums got overcrowded and there were disease, crime, etc., etc. So what we, what did we do? We brought, knocked them down and built taller blocks, to put people the same people in high rises. So mm. the slums have not they're not spread out anymore, they're vertical. Mm. And so you had the same issues. So even when I went to Peckham in Peckham Estate, I think my first day in Peckham estate, man got stuck up. They were trying <laughs> to rob me. <laughs> I was only 13, man. <laughs>
2: so I mean, T you made a really good point about town planning. Now I'm not an expert in in, in town planning, but w- what I would say is if we go back to the post-war period, uh, 1950s, 1960s. You have to imagine being a town planner at that time. So you've got all these individuals who have lost their homes. They've been bombed out flat. And previous to that point, you had potentially two or three families maybe living in one dwelling, all sharing one toilet. The, the whole concept of the estate was to give people their own home, which they hadn't had in the past. The whole idea of having tower blocks was perceived as utopian. It was perceived as something new, brilliant. It was it mm-hmm. it was, it was marveled across the world. You look at um, certain tower blocks in New York, they're very much in a similar architectural style to some of the estates we have here, and in Berlin, and in across Eastern Europe. That was the norm. But it was the whole idea that, you know, let's build these streets in the sky, let's build these estates to really give that sense of community. Whilst we could argue that town planning at the time was, was probably not correct. In the context of that time, they were trying to build uh, new communities for, for people who had been uh, war-stricken. And I think if we think about it in that context, you start to realise that these estates were trying to really embed that cultural importance. On the flip side, if we look in the context of Britain, some of these buildings were built to a really poor standard. Like, that is undeniable. And alongside that, they will be built too quickly. One of the instances, I think it was Trobridge Estate. When you look at the kind of the design of that estate, some of the material that was used on that block was actually outright wrong. Some of the bolts were missing. This is the this is a situation where people were living in houses that were literally unsafe. See, you mentioned, um, or Santo, you mentioned about kind of Grenfell, and obviously uh, that's a modern day disaster. People were literally living in estates far worse than that on a daily mm-hmm. basis. Throughout mm. Hackney, whilst I guess um, the responsibility lies with the council and others, those buildings, like just uh, uh, putting it simply, were absolute areas. Of Not structure.
0: fit for living. Not Not fit to live in. And I guess you're, I guess thinking about thinking about Grenfell, i thinking about Cladding, and thinking about this lack of care that goes into the process of building houses for working class people. Like that's the consistent lack of care taken during that process. We can see it across history. More people are getting us to think as well about how that lack of care with regards to town planning and building houses actually goes beyond just working class living as well. So if we think about the cladding that was on Grenfell, like we know that that's on like hotel tower blocks. We know it's on student accommodation. This is it's like we've lost We've lost the, I mean, I don't want to say lost because it was clearly there before, but the idea that places can be safe for people to live, it seems so basic, Hmm. but it's just, it's not
1: there. I think it comes down to this idea, first of all, the kind of core idea of ownership, right? Mm. the idea in in, especially in british in british politics in british society is the idea of ownership owning a property makes you part of the the the, the landed gentry you could vote there was an idea that owning something owning a property is the Mm. thing to do right and so post-war you have this kind of utopian idea that we want to give people the right to own their their own 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 spaces which is revolutionary right Mm. but it's but how do you execute that because properties are tied to essentially the accumulation of funds right Mm. Of having funds, the ability to purchase a property, so mm. it was it was a council's duty to have those funds. But as we've seen, in, and as history played out, that didn't end up that way. So mm. what Margaret factor put in the right to buy, so now working class people have the ability to buy their own property, which turned out to be a disaster. Mm. And so this idea of how do you fund this desire? Because the council can no longer do it. So now we have private interests stepping in to do it. And the mm. problem is the gap's still there. Poor people can't afford their own home. So maybe the idea of ownership is the issue. Mm. The idea of making stuff that if you're going to make something, who's going to make it? Because there's a cost to it, right? And it is, so if this, should the state provide that?
2: You both made really good points. Obviously, um, I won't be... Talking about um, kind of today's political situation, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just give some context around, uh, you mentioned around uh, Margaret Thatcher. So if we go back to the 1970s, whereby um, obviously a lot of the housing stock was moved from the GLC back to um, local authorities to manage. There was this growing perception um, by the end of the 1970s that, you know, councils were not looking after their housing stock, that councils were inefficient. And the, the, there is some evidence to suggest that that there was some kind of mismanagement of of, of housing. The, the policy around right to buy and the policy around privatisation is obviously a, a a political drive. Like we, we can't deny that uh, in the context of the 1980s, where Margaret Thatcher was very much around, you know, deregulation and all the rest of it. Right to buy has a very, I guess, like the the, the process of regeneration has a very kind of there's no right or wrong answer to impact. Obviously, many individuals who were working class families had the opportunity to buy their home, which they never would have had. But the kind of negative consequence of that is that the housing stock in, in Hackney and many other boroughs has has disappeared. I mean, I'm, I'm very much in favour of kind of uh, government intervention in in, in in the building of homes. I, I believe that so we pay our taxes, it is the government's responsibility to make sure that, um, that we have the suitable availability of, of, of housing, which is why I work for government. But I'm not entirely against private intervention in 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 the build of homes because of the kind of historical i guess i wouldn't say the historical mismanagement but the historical or the lack of i guess real incentive to ensure that there are the appropriate delivery of homes delivered by 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 government services and i think that relationship between private and public sector is is key to making sure that we have appropriate homes in the future but there's an issue of affordability which you can't deny
0: if you could just break down the difference between council housing and social housing mm. and because you met because what you're talking about in terms of being in favor of government um intervention but also seeing the value in some private intervention do you put social housing in the same bracket as private intervention
2: so for me my personal um view is that social housing is obviously critical to the availability yeah. of home, particularly for for working class people I think what I would argue is that private intervention has made sure that we have investment in housing across the country where where councils or government can't put in the money or...
0: Can't or won't.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't answer that question. Just going back to that, that specific issue, in terms of social housing, uh, which is yeah. obviously the, the building of homes by uh, councils or government departments. Obviously, there was a real issue around the, the funding of ha- homes and the funding of councils and the, the, the availability of funding for councils to actually build those homes. And I think there's, there's been a real struggle, in, uh, particularly in history. Obviously, I don't want to talk about current um, politics. Yeah. Whether councils have the sufficient ability to make sure they build enough homes. And that's a debate that crossed the political spectrum. Obviously, those who are much more in favour of kind of factorism and, and those kind of ideologies would kind of support the investment of private entities. But then you do get a situation where working class people will most likely or potentially find themselves in situations where they can't afford rents or can't afford to buy their homes or uh, the availability of homes is, is reduced. And, and that is a reality in Hackney as well, whereby um, councils or housing associations are working quite closely with private developers. Housing associations manage the, the housing stock. I wouldn't say kind of delegitimize the role of the council. Potentially it, it is. I think housing associations are kind of um, not public sector um, organisations. They're not private, either. They're kind of charity organisations who will deliver homes on behalf of uh, people. And they always have done. Um, But I think the, the, the whole idea was that councils weren't in a sufficient position to deliver homes on behalf of people. And I think over the last few, probably the last two or three decades where social housing has moved increasingly towards housing associations, House & Associations have been more um, able to to deliver homes at, uh, at a much faster pace um, and are able to reinvest that investment much, far more effectively with a sufficient business model to move towards just building homes, whereas councils obviously have a whole host of different things that they need to uh, deliver.
1: My issue with the private investment is that mm. when they start building homes, I guess the term space, the theme space, right? Mm. So when they build in these new, these, new, these new blocks of flats, spaces are limited. So I, as a working class person, can't use the gym that they've built because it's mm. for the private residents. Or I, as a, as a working class person or someone who's on benefits, I can't use the front door. I have to walk mm. in the side door. Now, these are not progressive, I would argue, are regressive steps because they were there in the 19th century. In the Eastern slums, but rich people had separated off themselves from poor people. And this mm. is what you see. We're seeing stark contrasts in wealth. Mm. in these enclaves so when they're building these things in space in my private investment yeah, I, I get that and I get the idea of making profit but the idea of space space mm. has been transformed because I can't be that person I, I can't I'm not even allowed in that space I'm mm. excluded from from the block of flats so I remember speaking to a developer who was looking to redevelop my mum's flats and I asked him the same question. I said, Can I use my can I use that gym? He goes, No, mm. you haven't got the fob. I said, Bro, mm. like you're build, you're you're building in equality. You're building in yeah. I got I got kicked out of the meeting. But <laughs> 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 But can you see like on a on a, on, a, on a, even on a practical level, there's spaces you can't go. Mm. Now and it's a, it's that same policing where it comes to that postcodes, where mm. you might not lose your life, but you're gonna feel socially different, socially mm. awkward perhaps. When you go to certain spaces, because regeneration, like, like I said, that starts to create these
2: enclaves, these issues with spaces. That is an entirely valid point. And I think the issue with spaces is, is fundamental to housing.
0: Just gone straight in, like, Richard, why did I do this?
2: <laughs> no, no, no. It's my job to answer these questions. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but I think, um, so you made, you made a really interesting point about um, being kicked out of that meeting. Uh, which you shouldn't have been so (laughs) uh, the the whole idea of kind of private and public uh, and house association partnerships when they're redeveloping an estate is that the residents have a say in what that estate looks like obviously we were we're all fully aware that uh, and 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 often what is the case uh, when social housing is redeveloped a proportion of that that housing uh, is moved um, over to kind of uh, uh, private investors to to sell those homes and etc and it's not available for existing residents but it should be part of the process uh, when, when new homes are planned, that residents really feed into that process. And one example I will give is that when the Holly Street estate was redeveloped in, in Hackney uh, towards the end of the 90s, residents were really engaged in that process. I'm not saying they, they were able to get, um, I guess, every single request that they requested for. But one of the things was they, um, they left one of the blocks up. They were initially going to uh, demolish all four of them and they left one of the the blocks up, completely redesigned it, made it safe and they've left it for older residents who really wanted to stay in the estate. And that is one example where that kind of private and and, and public partnership does provide some benefits for residents. I'm not saying in in all cases it it doesn't. And what is often the case, when a regeneration process takes place, you do get less homes being built on the same site, but you do often get instances where local uh, clubs will be built gyms etc wider availability of, of um, uh, parks or say gardens for residents one example in the king's estate is that many residents never had gardens a uh, king's is now I guess uh, a row of kind of small dwellings and every resident has a garden you know that is a complete shift to people living on on the 19th floor of an unsafe tower block it's hard to kind of disagree and agree. And this is why I say that the, the, the yeah. argument is always no, it's,
0: it's very This is a very, it's a mm. caring, nuanced chat, Richard, yeah. even mm. though we have put it on you. Although, <laughs> although, I just want to, I want to roll back, Richard, because I mm. hear what you're saying, yeah. But in 2020, mm. in our highly individualised, neoliberal, mm. capitalist society, can we, and institutionally racist society mm. as well, can we guarantee that well we can't guarantee but I want you to talk to a little bit about this how are all these things all these systems affecting the relationship between re- residents and developers mm. like how can we ensure that more instances like the one you the example you've just given where the residents have more of a say and or it seems to be quote unquote a progressive setup mm. is it possible to get that with all these different things that we've got going on at the moment and how much, like, profit is, is takes mm. precedence over life.
2: I'm not a policymaker. I don't no. work for the conservative government. I don't... I'm not even a policymaker within MHC or G. <laughs> but yeah. um, what I would say is that... Um, councils uh, and even my organization homes england are making it really imperative that then when they are working with councils housing associations and developers that there is that partnership and they are working really closely with resident groups to really ensure that it is reflective of the local area when they are building homes obviously we're going to get situations where uh, councils might just sell off land to private developers and there's a block in Mare Street which is uh, was previously just a a wasteland and they built uh, a private property and obviously that's not necessarily going to involve much resident engagement but where there's a regeneration process I think there is a huge incentive by councils and the government more generally to make sure that there is that partnership between uh, residents house associations and developers but you you touched upon neoliberalism and We have to to recognise that since the 1980s and and, and factorism, neoliberalism is the dominant uh, approach to to how we manage our economy and our housing stock within this country. That hasn't disappeared. So in the context of that, we need to really try and make sure that the public sector and residents and social factors are really taken into account alongside those Important factors for, for for those who support neoliberalism around privatization and deregulation and, and private investment, which uh, to some extent, as as many instances have also shown, is that private investment is needed where social investment can't necessarily provide that support.
1: Historically, the capital always wins out. The need. So I used to work in um, property investment, right? So the need are the profits. So eventually, as a as a as a banker. I was I would press the developer and say, Look, listen, how much money are we making out of this? Mm. So the, the need of capital overrides the kind of need of the of the kind of social element. So I would end up the developers will say to me, Listen, I've got to do okay. a section 106 to build social housing element of the build. I'm gonna build it off-site. I'm gonna build it somewhere <laughs> else. I'm gonna build it somewhere else within the bar. But so it still falls within the regulations, but mm. they did that. Or the, the section one oh six would be I'm going to make it social housing, but in, like in, in the case of my mum's flats, we're going to put it right at the back where all the roads are so they get all the fumes, protects all the rich people. Capital always wins out. That's one of the things about gentrification. As these mm-hmm. enclaves, we, we can see capital always winning out, and the same people who were the losers remain the losers. Mm-hmm. As a person who still lives in this place, as a person who proudly identifies with these places, I see my people losing out. Always losing out. Gentrification has made the surroundings nicer. But if you come to my block, you're still going to get robbed. You're still going to get beaten up. Oh, these people are still taking drugs. These things are still going The police don't come into my block. They don't come into my block. Why? Because for them, it's still the idea of a no-go. So we police ourselves. This is a story I reckon you can you can say this from any big city. From London to New York to Paris. A similar thing. Where the, you, the enclaves... We've got our own rules still. Has it hasn't, hasn't, changed much for us outside. Mm. Has, and the, the places we can we can go, and the influx of people. But the core of these blocks, they're still there unless you unless you knock them down.
2: But what I would say is, how are those organisations, particularly like developers, government organisations, going to change unless they have people like you, who have the experiences of working or living in in in, in a borough that's been deprived? You're going to continue to get those same individuals who are going to effectively have a negative impact on, on 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 areas unless we kind of embed the change within those those organizations with individuals like you oh, so I think there's a real shift I, I, personally I think is happening within government and is happening within politics more generally and within all sectors whereby people from different backgrounds are definitely having more of a seat on on on, on the table and I think particularly in housing I think that is also the case and I think the we hope and i'm not saying for certain but we hope that for future generations there is a, a more uh, equitable situation around um, social housing
0: i think it's really good for the listeners and for me and TSO more broadly like that you're giving us a nuanced mm. take on what some one of the things that we as you can see from this whole episode feel very passionate about but i also think it's really important that we don't necessarily romanticize state intervention and the actors within state intervention and by that i mean that the reason why some of these processes have had to change is because people have fought for those changes. Mm, it isn't wow. because people historically, like yourselves, have been within government, have been part of civil service, or have been in leadership, have thought, you know what, I'm going to help these people. Mm. It's because people have banged on the door. It's because people have fought, whether it's for housing, communal living, welfare, all this stuff, people for decades have fought for their rights. So mm. I think that I think that, like, just following on from what you're saying, like, if there's more people like yourselves that are from the area that understand the area, it's really good for them to be part of it. But I guess we have to just keep remembering that we can't just hope things will improve. Mm. It always has to be fought for. And that means that we need people like yourselves, Richard, that are within the system, but we mm. also need people that are without. Mm. So Ooh. it's kind of like accepting it everyone's varying roles have been mm. changed, but also me and Tisa often will try and work against romanticising s- state interventions as something that they mm. feel like is morally correct. Mm. Normally, they've done stuff to protect communities because they've been forced to. Mm. And I think the examples that you give, Richard, about different, different areas and how they've changed and how residents have got their needs heard, like we can't take away the agency from that process of those people as well.
2: 100% I think one example is um, there's a really good documentary on YouTube about about the Kingshold estate and there's um, one individual who campaigns literally for about 10 years to knock down the Kingshold estate and he's campaigning to the council and the council initially are not receptive to his concerns they're not receptive to the fact that he's got health there's individuals who have health issues because of the build of the estate there is crime there is etc I'm not mm-hmm. saying that and like 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 you mentioned, Chantal, we shouldn't romanticise state intervention. I believe in the state, and I'm sure you guys do. I definitely believe that the public sector plays a role in our communities, but the, that does not mean that the public sector does not have faults and is not always perfect. And in some cases, it does need that 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 intervention from from other actors, whether they be non for profit or whether they be for profit. You know and i think that that when you have a combination of those different individuals which is what the labor government really tried to drive forward after um uh the conservative government um from 1979 to 1997 is that that partnership between different individuals really does help the regeneration process and i certainly believe that particularly in context of of um, the estates in hackney that partnership has particularly for those estates that i've focused on um my research around has definitely been fruitful for many individuals and i've spoken to the individuals and they talk about that regeneration process largely uh being quite quite a quite a a good process i definitely agree with you regeneration Mm. is is something that that is
1: i would say uplifted the area and Mm. i like but like i said the kind of the the flip side of it is the displacement Mm. The the flip side of it is like for example somewhere like canary wolf which mm. is, it pretends to be a public space, but it's all privately owned. Mm. So mm. it creates a sanitized space that's not, it doesn't reflect reality. It doesn't have mm. homeless people. It doesn't have rubbish. It doesn't have traffic. Things that I see, in all, and that is the fear that it's creating these spaces where, where people like myself and the people I hang around with, we don't feel like we belong. And maybe that's part of the process of change in itself, that mm. this this just happens over time, but as for people who are rooted here and don't have the socioeconomic means to move from here, we're quite firmly, we're firmly rooted. How would the council or private investors help me? right now in 2020, the answer is not very much. <laughs> during the pandemic, not very much, and, mm. and political parties, not very much because that narrative of no-go areas, mm. they don't come here. They don't mm. speak to us. Unless something goes wrong and we speak to them, no one comes to us. Yeah, yeah. And and and, th- and this becomes one of the problems, I think.
2: I think it's a really interesting point because um, I mean I, I did used to work for the Hackney Council and I think councils are in a really difficult position because they are their job is to kind of support residents. People pay council tax, people their job is to support the local community. But they also have a, a really big job to bring an in investment to support those communities. And one example is which is quite closely related to 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 housing is is around markets. And there's a lot of markets. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Obviously you're probably familiar with like Ridley Road Market. In, in yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um I remember going there all the time with my mum carrying bags. Hate it. Uh, yeah. Hated. <laughs> I hated it. I
1: hated it. I used to get burnt with cigarettes and everything, man. I hated it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, everyone, everyone remembers those days, but you remember the, the, the vibrancy of the market yeah, yeah. and, you know, being able to buy all sorts of cultural food that, that you would only get in Hackney mm. and seeing different people. That is, like, culturally significant, like mm. estates. Mm. But, you know, when, you, when, when councils are thinking about regeneration, and just to go back to the context of markets, councils need to think about what kind of investment can I bring into this market to improve it? And when they can't get that internally, because obviously councils have been stricken as a result of austerity and all the rest of it, they need to work with other actors to bring in that money. And that does cause a lot of friction between communities that have lived there for a long time. I remember when um, we was having consultations with different markets across Hackney, and there was this, this, this real contention between market traders who very much felt like Hackney was their home. That stall was theirs. That market was theirs. But in reality, it isn't. You know? And when we think about social housing, it's exactly the same. We kind of attach ourselves to homes, whether rightly or wrongly, and have to believe that it's ours. You know. And obviously, tenancies, in, in some respects, may allow us to, to, to have that belief. But it's the council's housing stock. You know, they are the ones that have to make ensure that the people and, and the housing stock in that, in that area is, is is appropriate. But ultimately, it's under their jurisdiction. The council can do whatever it wants. People need to remember that because communities do very feel very much connected to their areas, their properties, etc. When we talk about social housing and social intervention, it usually is the responsibility of the state and it is the ownership of the state. I
1: know, but this is the thing. So especially after the post-war, so post-war has created created the idea of a state, a welfare state that will mm. look after you. So the idea that this belongs to me, it is very much part of that thing that the state, the government will provide for me. Mm. So now you have a situation now that it seems like the town planners, developers are treating and government is treating my life as an experiment. These are people's lives, right? My life is it's not just my life, I've got a history here. So I, there's like mm. three or four generations here. So when someone comes here and said, this is not your home, how can you say that? I've been here for thirty mm. years. Yeah, so yeah. this, the idea that these things—it's it's not just the bricks and mortar. It's the whole environment. There's there's a m- kind of multifaceted reasons that this I, this I feel an, a, an affinity to this space. Mm. And now all of a sudden, state comes in and tells me on, on one hand, I I can decide what I want with this place. No, you 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 can't. You mm. just you just can't mm. say that to <laughs> because in my real life, in my real life, I'm going to feel away because mm. I've lived there for my mum, my my nan, <laughs> Listen, you come to
0: the edge, we'll go to war. We'll, you go to war. <laughs> no, no. But, I really inter- but I think it's really interesting, Richard, your mm. point about the market traders and the, ide- and the idea of ownership of space. Mm. And you said that it belongs to the state, it belongs to the council. Mm. But... Who is the state? Who is the council? Is it a person or is it an institution? Because for me, I would probably argue with your point about it not belonging to the Mm. um, market trader. And I would say it does belong to him Mm. because he pays his taxes, he pays his rent. Like, I believe that space should be equitable Mm. because if you say that a space doesn't belong to them, even though they've been there for such a long time, you're saying, well, the space could belong to you if you have a million pounds. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that's like quite an extreme example, but I just feel like it comes, I, I think we're talking about quite existentially about mm. space, ownership, belonging, practicality. I think it's really good that you're ta- You're coming in with the practicalities. I think that's really mm. good. I think that's something that needs to be embedded in how we're thinking as well. Mm. But also I want to push back against the, the notion that, the market trader doesn't own that space mm. because who does own it? Because actually it's not that the state would be like and the, the council, the state would be like, Well, it belongs to the state, it belongs to the state, because actually it belongs to the highest bidder nowadays.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a that that's a really reasonable challenge, I think. Because yeah. just go back to look what at I
0: was- all the love, look at all the critical love we've got myself
1: last time. Listen, <laughs> listen, come on. He's <laughs> <Please laughs> for my bit <laughs> that's why. Please for my <laughs>
2: <laughs> no I think, I think that is a really really valid challenge because just going back to what I was talking about um off air is that um when we go back to the 1960s and 1970s and I've spoken to a couple of people um who are now in their 60s and 70s who lived on some of the hackney estates they talk about those homes like it was a part of them you know it was everything to to them they allude that kind of belief that you know that this space is ours is that they, they describe every single component of their homes they talk about the windows they talk about the room sizes they talk about they talk about every aspect of the community as if it's theirs and i think that's a really valid point that maybe ownership isn't as i guess distinctive as saying you know we own the land ownership can be can mean many more things and you know people grow to to kind of have that perception of ownership simply just by being there it's a really valid point and a point that i didn't disregard but yeah
0: Richard if you don't mind me saying mm. I think so we're similar age so we're both quote-unquote millennials right mm. I think that possibly some of how you feel about ownership and what you were mm. talking about like how can someone say they own it when they actually mm. don't is because we are neoliberal children <laughs> awesome. as in we were born early 1990s and we have lived through and a Increase a vastly, vastly increased process of neoliberalism. So the idea of owning something is and being that attached to something in the way that you describe these residents awesome. being is so foreign to us that it almost makes you like, well, no, that's not mm. actually how it works. But we're a product of what has happened in society and how society has changed. Mm. And as in thinking, like regulatory thinking about housing, thinking about who has who has the capacity to own and wealth divides. Mm. So. I hope you don't mind me saying that. No, 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 Um, I think that's a really interesting point
2: because um, uh, I don't know if you've seen, um, on my blog, I I talk a lot about neoliberalism in the context of sub-Saharan Africa and all the rest of it. And I'm hugely critical of neoliberalism in terms of its impact in uh, kind of destroying the economies of a lot of developing countries around the world. But sometimes I think I forget that my own... Kind of inclination, <laughs> to, which daddy. is embedded yeah. in me. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm the same daily, yeah. daily. I have to like, I have to be like, hang on a minute, that's me, <laughs> right. that's me. Like, and I'm this... not saying that you did that. I'm just mm. saying we're a product of our generation. Agree, and T yeah, yeah. T, oh come gosh. in, T, <laughs> <G-G> come <laughs> in. Old man,
1: right? right? chat. Let me get my wheelchair. <laughs> Let me get my wheelchair. <laughs> Let me get my wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. Listen. No, you're a
0: zoomer, T. You're a zoomer. Do you know that's what it's called? Is
1: that why I'm? Am I? Gen X, I Gen think. X. Yeah, yeah. I yeah Gen X. Right, so, what's interesting, the generational thing. So, my mum's lived in the same block of flats since 1981, mm. right? So, you see a generational thing. So, the older people tend to they feel an ownership. So, when I speak to my mum, the care they take with the block the care that was in here. So we had different superintendents, They care that they had, this block was clean. It was, there was no, there was never any piss in the lift or anything like that. But as ideologies change, that idea of ownership changed. Mm. Now, I, I, in, in its concrete forms, in its day-to-day practice, it, it manifests itself in lack of care. Mm. Like people, people knew this house wasn't theirs. It's an old treat in a way. So I've been in a block in someone's house where you just messed up someone's house and left. And gone but and that seemed quite common because the idea of transit and the relationship with the council is one of this is a business transaction and they'll get me another one mm. and this is it, it's, it's a, like i said it's a generational thing so my mom is of the boomer generation so the care that she has the plants the everything they're very invested my generation i'm not too sure man man's a, a, a zoomer man i'm into making money man <laughs> that's i used
2: to be i used to be i used to be, I used to be, I used to be. <laughs> so i will make this point uh, not specifically in the context of um government policy the whole concept of home ownership has has really become fundamental the british psyche all we ever talk about when we get to our late 20s early 30s early 40s whatever it is all we ever talk about is home ownership so
1: i end up working in property as it's essentially tied into this English notion of like becoming part of the kind of land gent- the middle classes, mm. home ownership. Mm. But most if you look around the world, most places in Europe, some mm. most places in the States, it's not an issue. Rent For or sure. buy according to what your need is, right? Mm. But but in but in the UK, it's ownership only. So I'll go to a dinner party and someone like, says, Do you own your own property? I'm like, nah. And the first <laughs> response is like Oh, that's dead money. That's dead money. I'm like, oh, you fucking dick. My dad says it to me all
2: the time. Oh, yeah. that's a dead <laughs> track,
1: man. Ownership comes with its own set of problems, right? Responsibility hmm. and all those things that no one really thinks of. A mortgage. Money till you die. I'll lend you money till you die. Hence the word mortgage.
2: You know, obviously in the 70s, home ownership was not, a major concern for many of these people that lived in estates the because there was always a, the presumption that they had their homes they had a sure tenancy they weren't going to leave you know um when right to buy comes into play and you're seeing your next door neighbor buy their house and you can't afford to you you're still expecting the council to, to look after you whereas your your nearest neighbor has owns their house they've got responsibility for their home and that that separation between Ownership and non-ownership has become so deeply embedded in in British society that I don't I, I don't think there's, there's, there's any way we can look back. If I'm but, honest, that's why.
1: That's I think it's interesting point because it speaks to what's the fundamental problem, or what we're talking about in general: the haves and the have-nots. Mm. And neoliberalism p- puts the blame squarely on the have-nots. For you, for you, for you not doing this, it's down to you, the individual, mm. regardless of the structural issues. It's down to you, that's why you don't own your property next door. Mm. He worked harder than you, or mm. she worked harder than you, and we mm. know that's not true. And mm. this is the problem. So, in these enclaves of poverty that you have in these redeveloped areas, it's that have and have nots. The people there are, are these are the go getters, they work really mm. hard, they've got the top jobs. No, bro, listen, <laughs> I used to work with them. You're fucking dicks, you're idiots. I used to work with you. You don't know anything, man. <laughs> like, you don't know anything, yeah. but this is the problem. And, I, I, and just by an accident at birth, I'm in the have-nots. Mm. And I, I sit here, and there's not just me. it's There's, there's a, a million of us that were just mm. born in the have-not section. And it's not for our own fault. But we sit there, and our day-to-day experience now is one where we are confronted with the haves, who are somehow, like, somehow, or the reason why I don't have what you have is because I haven't it's enough. So, because I'm in that, and this is generally speaking, in that have-not bracket, because I, because those certain avenues not over to me. Some pursue crime, and this is a bit a historic part of the East End. And a, going back to that book, uh, a child called Jago, it's listed there, and it's listed through as a rational choice to make money is crime. Mm. And so, what do you do? So I want to have what the haves have, but I can't. I haven't. Got, I might not have the qualifications that put me into the kind of quali- into that bracket, or I might not have the kind of social etiquette to put me in that bracket. So what does man do? I, I just go with my powers, man, and I'll, mm. I'll make that money. And and this is that story, and that's that story that produces grime. That story that produces UK drill. That's that story that produces hip hop. Mm. And it's a mad, it's a madness,
2: right? It's mad. It's
0: absolutely mad. Oh, uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. Ma'am. That was so fruitful, interesting, critically engaging. Like we really appreciate you coming mm. on. Um, listeners, we'll have another episode for you next week. And patrons, you got another episode coming your way as well. Thank you so so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye-bye, bye, bye. -bye. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso.
0: If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.